What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Today, my guest is coming to you all the way from Australia. He's a legend of the music business. He's a legend of the piano and one hell of a nice guy. So please enjoy my conversation with the one, the only Mr. Ben Folds. Hey, Ben, how you doing? Good. How you doing? I'm doing good. What, what time is it there? By my calculations, it's about 10 o'clock in the morning. Exactly. That's 10 right. o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, my, my producer is uh, Australian, and because of the pandemic, we just did a brand new record, and we did it over Zoom. Shit, how did that work out? It was actually really good. It was about a second latency, but he could hear all the... He basically got, in real time, our headphone cues. So there was eight channels that he could listen to. Wow. And we would start at odd times, like two o'clock in the afternoon, and it would be like two o'clock in the morning because we were recording in New York. And it was it it worked. It worked. Wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, Kevin. I remember Kevin. Yeah, Kevin Shirley, the caveman. Yeah. Yeah. We 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 rented your studio a bunch. It's yeah. like it's one of the saddest things that that room is not available anymore because it's, it's not. I thought Dave, it was. Well, Dave took it over and he put all his stuff in there. And I get it being a collector myself, he, he doesn't want people messing with the stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, hey, you know, so he doesn't rent it out. Yeah, studio is a tough thing to make a living at. And you actually probably have more of a chance of, of uh, probably have more of a chance of surviving as a studio if you use it for the things you can leverage it for. Right. You know, and right. not... Um, and not and not rent it. I, 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 you know, with the, over the 15 years I had the studio, uh, the last half of that time, um, I made it a, you know, unavailable studio, but yeah. we knew that it wasn't a, um, it wasn't a ever going to be a lucrative thing. It actually probably cost us to be in business. Right. Well, you know, I'm, but, but like like, like yeah. you said, it's like 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 Ocean Way. I go to Ocean Way Studio A or Studio B when I record here in Nashville, and I'm getting Studio B for eight hundred dollars a day. That's what we were paying in the '90s. Yeah, you know, it's like it's there's no money in it. You know? Nah, no, nah, no. Nah, there's no. That's that was part of the problem with trying to keep you know trying to keep Music Row preserved. Is the you know the actual studios themselves were all struggling because we can all do it in bedrooms and and in uh, other spaces and smaller studios, but there's always going to be the need and the use for a few major big studios. And my argument always was, if you can stick it out and hang on to your space, you'll be that studio, right? Like because there has to be there has to be one. <laughs> I mean, yeah. You know, so so even though a lot of I mean, at, at one time, the, the really the only three, the three studios in Nashville that were uh, large, large spaces that you could record a big ensemble in or you could just, you know, just add space like proper space were uh, Gillian Welch's place, my place and Ocean Way, which was uh, uh, Belmont. Right. And so these, these weren't, you know, this, none of us were profit. That's why we could afford to do it. Yeah. And I mean, and you could, like you said, leverage your, your, your own solo records and stuff right. that you would, you would be spending that money in somebody else's studio. You could charge it back and then it, 
you know, given. Yeah, that's life. right. I mean, before it was like, I just made sure. And it was actually a way to keep me creating, you know, that way it's like, well, I need to do an album this year because the budget is going to pay for the studio. And right. then the next year it's like, oh shit, I guess I got to produce a record. The William Shatner record happened because of that. Plus you need, you need equipment for each individual project and you find yourself amassing the equipment over, you know, each one, right. Each, 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 uh, uh project I had in there, uh, carries a memory with it of, or the gear carries the memory of the projects because I go, Oh, we got that on the Sarah Bareilles record because we needed a couple extra compressors for a band and et cetera. So. Well, you know, I, when I bought my house in California, um, it, it, it had gone from, guitar player studio rat to guitar player studio rat to guitar collector me <laughs> yeah they built a studio um it was rudger Hauer's old house and 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 the 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 it was the largest drug dealer uh cocaine dealer in in west hollywood lived there in the 70s ringo Starr was there he told me about it Anyway, the studio was built. I inherited an API console, very, very similar to the console that was in your studio. Jesus, you inherited one. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I think I paid more for the house. And I was like, and then my friends were like, I was like, okay, I'm going to build this studio out. I'm going to do the recording gear and stuff like that. I didn't have anything. This is, this is my only microphone. Okay. Right. So my friends start saying words like black hole and the gift that keeps on charging. And it totally... I said, you know what, for the amount of time I'm going to use this studio to do voiceovers or radio shows or guest spots, it's never going to pay for itself. And I'm just going to put a hundred grand into something yeah. that just, that is by the time I get back from tour is obsolete. You know, it's, 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 it's crazy. What was Shatner like to work with? Because he just turned 90 and, and what, a, what an international treasure that guy is. Insane. Um, yeah. Uh, He's um, he's well, he's complicated, but he's um, art. He's artistically just sort of it's refreshing for a musician because one, he's used to working um, on quick time frames, so. Um, that's really a difference when you work with an actor because they're like he's like well the shoot is booked at eight o'clock i know my lines i'm ready let's do this take and move on you know right. and that's really kind of amazing because uh we don't really you know we have deadlines but it's it creates an atmosphere for an actor especially an old school one that you do it a couple times, maybe if you're lucky, and then you move on. You're ready in that moment to capture it. And for that, I, I mean, I learned so much. I mean, if I asked him to do it again, he might say either why, or he would he would be like, uh, do it completely different. And I'd say, well, I need to do it the same way, basically, if you could, so I can edit. He didn't understand that at all. To him, it was like, look, I gave you plan A. If you don't like that, I... I can cry this time or I can make it slower or faster. Um, and th the reason that that was really good for me was because it reminds you that all you really need is the one. Yeah. I mean, that's really all you need. That's what people are going to hear. So if you're prepared for that, you're, you're like in a state, like you're getting ready to do the Olympics or something, you're getting ready to run a race. 
you don't have a second chance at this. You can't say, ah, everyone go back to the starting line and, and do it again. That is the moment of truth. And, and um, he had that so burned in his head that that permeated the session, you know, and I'm kind of like that more than most musicians anyway. I, I'm, I'm not like a 75 take kind of person anyway, but this really kept me on my game. Uh, and he was also, um, you know, he, he's his work ethic as well. Um, yeah, he was he was absolutely. I mean, he was yeah. Learned learned so much from him, and you know, we we hung out a lot for a period of time, and we we were, we were we were, I was lamenting that he turned ninety, and there was a time when we would both send a text and make a phone call on uh, or a phone call before text happened. Uh, you know, right. uh, on, on our birthday. So I always remember his birthday. And I was right. like, oh yeah. Here we go. It's March 22nd or 23rd. And, uh, and it's his birthday. And, and uh, he would call me on mine and say, Benny, it's Billy. Yeah. But it's just, you know, like, and that was like 10 years ago when he was just a young man of 80. And we started working together when he was in his early 70s. And I thought, wow, you know, he's an older, he's, yeah, anyway. He's a deep cat. He's a really yeah. deep cat who, you know, I mean, everybody knows him as Captain Kirk and, yeah. you know, but, but he's a really deep cat. I mean, I actually, I bought his, uh, his blues record, you know, <laughs> and I was like, there's Richie Blackmore to Brad Paisley. My friend Kirk Fletcher played on it. And at first it's a little bit shocking. Like, you're like, I don't know what, what this is, especially like the thrill is gone. But you just kind of, you can't help yourself, but just go, you know, it's pretty damn cool, you know, well, and it, it's just, he has a way is, of delivery. Yeah, well, I mean, we've grown up in a world where um, everyone's talking at us constantly our whole lives. I mean, we're inundated with radio, television, and there aren't many voices that catch your attention mm -hmm. and capture your imagination. And that you also recognize, so so his voice is very potent. When he decides to do something with it, you can laugh at it a little bit because he is funny, but uh, it, it also will sink in. I mean, I took the uh, position on on the record that we did together, and this, the reason that I produced it was that he had been asking me for advice because we were just, it was more like we were buds, and he was asking me for advice. I remember being on tour, and... Um, having a long conversation with them about, you know, Bill, they don't need to talk you into doing silly shit. Like I know that, that they want you to do Madonna covers and, and, uh, and it's, it's, you've done that. And, and if I were you, I would um, uh, tell your story, write your own lyrics, tell your story and get great musicians who love you to come in and give their best performances collaborate with him. And then uh, uh, I wrote him a really in, uh, extensive email on how he would do that. Mm -hmm. And then the record label called me and said, sounds like you're the guy who needs to produce it. So I was like, yeah, sure. I can do that. And I felt like my job was to protect him from being silly. Right. Cause it's, it's easy with him to go camp, you know, yeah. and he's done that a lot. Yeah. Well, and he goes there naturally. Right. Which was, that's, you know, I, like I'm going to say he learned anything from me, but uh, if he did, that was it, which was just my constant, like, I've heard that shit, Bill. I know it. It's funny, but that's nothing to do with the delivery of the record. So let's just keep it straight 
keep your eye on the lyric mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and really feel these things. And I'll bet you it'll be funny too. And it was like, like, like any, any time he's funny anyway. So you don't need to have him turn on the cheese meter. I mean, it, on, on the record we did together, you could have just taken alternate takes or so easily taken it down a path of just being straight up silly. But, you know, like he had thoughts that we, I interviewed him for, I think two days in the middle of studio uh, a RCA studio a with, I, I had a little bare bulb. I had the engineer hang a bare bulb over a card table and we yeah. sat across from each other in the dark, him with a big old uh, a condenser mic. And I just, I should have filmed it too, but I, I uh, interviewed him about his life for two days, just right. straight. And, um, and, you know, things about his wife dying in the pool and all this stuff. And the, the reason was, is I wanted to show him how much he had to pull from. Yes. And, uh, and, and in fact, we used his talking about his wife dying in the pool on the record. And then I was taxed with the burden of trying to figure out how to put music to that. When, you, when you're producing stuff, um, what percentage of it? And I have a little experience producing records. And the first time that I produced a record, what hit me square between the eyes, like a ton of bricks, was the psychology factor of it all. Yeah. Because you're like the camp counselor. You're the mm-hmm. motivator. You, you come in early You with the vision and you, in some respects, trying to save the artists for themselves. Exactly. Yeah. So what percentage would you put on, on, a, on a, sitting in the production chair that, it, you know, uh, how much is that psychology versus actually just, you know, making sure it sounds good? I think it depends on the artist, really. I mean, some need more uh, counseling than others, but pretty much I think everyone, uh, this is from my experience producing and just being on sessions, you know, mm-hmm. um, is that most artists um, do have a couple of go-to places like like Shatner with his uh, comedy? Yeah, that's a common theme. You know, people that that, that like I always always use the example: of, uh, a child might, might might tell you that people like them because of the class clown, but if you ask their friends why they like them, it's everything but. Well, it's kind of obnoxious, his little class clown bit, but he's really nice. He gave me his peanut butter sandwich on break, or he's always concerned with people, or he dresses cool or something, but it's usually not what they think. So uh, so the artist has an idea of what their go-to comfort zone is. And I think you have to be very ginger around that, uh, step gingerly, because um, they really believe that, and it's usually bullshit. So you're, 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 you're trying. And the other thing is to create uh, a playpen and get them as, uh, as, you know, comfortable and free to roam as possible. Um, while at the same time, recognizing that you have a schedule, because some people will start coming the next day and they're like, I know we were working on this, but I've got three, four uh, new ideas. I want to try on something else. And you have to go (laughs) come here. We're going down the right path. So yeah, it is, it is a lot, a lot of it's that, but, but I think the main psychology has to do with, um, has to do with the, the, the self-perception and that self-perception could kill your record because, um, you'll keep making a lot of people keep making the same record over and over again. I, I'm not a great producer because um, 
I, I scare people. Mm-hmm. I can tell, I can tell that I, I, I just, it's, it's a, it's a fun and sometimes harrowing experience yeah. uh, for, for, and, and you want to put someone in a safer space. Now I think I've gotten good results, but I think I come out of it a lot of times with the perception from the artist being that it was haphazard. Right. Like your effort was haphazard. Yeah, that 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 it was kind of like I don't really know why he was there. It was pretty scary. He didn't have a plan. But you know, one of the things. But I don't want to have a plan. That's not on my fucking record. <laughs> That's right. You know, I I, I did a record with a, a great blues artist um, in Chicago, Joanna Connor, and I said, "Listen, you you know me. It's this kind of nerdy kid on the blues scene." I said, "When I get into the studio and I'm b- behind that side of the glass, I'm a tyrannical dictator." Because I know what I want to hear. And, and I know from working with producers who have done it to me, every artist defaults to the, the, the they're, they're, more, they're more scared screwing up in front of six people in the studio than they are yeah. in front of 15,000. That's right. And, yeah. and it's a weird paradigm. When the red light goes on, it's like, you know, you know, when you say you scare people, is it like you're just, do you act unpressed or is it like, is it, or they come in intimidated or? They feel there's not a plan that we're rudderless. Um, Because I think that a lot of the good stuff that they're going to find is going to come from uh, a a sense of mystery. You don't already know what the record is. I mean, you might know sort of, and it's good to have vision. But at the same time, uh, I, I like to, to leave it open for the possibility that uh, that something can happen that they don't that 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 they they didn't intend. So we can get them out of even long term. When I was working with Sarah Bareilles, I felt like she had been doing really great, really great mm-hmm. cookie cutter albums. Right. They came in at a certain time. It was a certain kind of musician. They knew what corners to go to. Everyone filled the sonic and rhythmic space in the way that they knew. They all knew when to come in the studio and point at the screen and show you the little fucking waveforms and tell you what they need to cut and stuff like that. They had all that down and they knew what time lunch was. And I felt, I felt that personally from us being friends that even though we hadn't discussed it directly, she really has in her a sense of mystery and rebellion and discovery. And you're not going to get that by planning it out in a meeting. You're not going to get that by letting the, 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 the label phone you up and drop by the studio and stuff like yeah. that. So what I do is I use my card that I'm an artist who kind of found himself in the position of producing and I don't know how to answer the phone and I don't know what time the drummer's coming in and I'm not dead sure if that was the right take or not. Like, cause I want it to, I want it to go somewhere, you know? And, and that's not, you know, I think that's maybe a musically interesting, artistically th- interesting thing to do. But I also think that I never have learned to temper that with a sense that they feel like they're in good hands. They feel like the guy's like, I don't know, it's going down the stream. What can be done? You know, but I do like, and after they're gone, I'm listening through everything and I'm organizing and I'm writing out what the new plan is, but I want to allow it to, to change. And, um, 
you know, that, that, that had, that results in, you know, a couple uncomfortable conversations and managers then call my managers and their labels trying to call you. And, and, uh, and then I, of course, so I'm just an artist. I don't know how to use a phone. <laughs> so, you know, it makes me, I, I thought that was pretty fun and maybe cool at the time. And I look back on it and I think that's just, I'm just not a producer really. I mean, I know what I, I've got the skills. I hear what I need to hear. There are, you know, you've made enough records. There are rules of nature. Yeah. And that's really what you're there to do at the very bottom line is make sure that you keep it smooth, keep the laws of physics in there and be nice to everybody and be a conduit and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's intensely uh, stressful stuff and it's not lucrative enough to, to, to it's, I, life's too short. Right. Life is too short. I, so, you know, the thing is, it, it's interesting when I produce records, I am not willing to wade through things. I, right. you get four takes. It's like you get four takes to the band. I, I write it all down. I go, we're going to take this verse from this thing. Great. I have a great engineer. We cut it all in. I make it. I make I, you make a take. That's it. I'm not going to sit. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to sit there and try different microphones on on a on a on a turntable that you plug the guitar into. I could care less because my favorite records are seriously the ones that that are just ramshackle and haphazard. They rolled yeah. in, played, and left. You yeah. know, and and it's it, it's a it's a way of record making. Do you think now? Record- I I think that's great, and I think that. Um, you know, there there needs to be, um, you know, uh, was it Glenn John's style of you come in and record it. Oh, yeah. shit. You know, kids, you're not ready. We're not yeah. going to sit here and have a rehearsal in my studio. Come back in two weeks and let's cut this thing twice. Yeah, I think that I love that because um, we need records that that capture an event. Right. And uh, and it's not. um you know, our styles sound different, but 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 it, it, it comes down to the same thing, which is if you're parenting well, you're not going to get thanked for it. <laughs> you're going to get. Yeah, exactly. That's a good you, you, no one. No one thanks the parents for doing the good job that if you're being thanked, then usually people are scared. Yeah. Or, or it's too safe. I'm always yeah. worried things are too safe. If people, if yeah. everybody if it doesn't rub people the wrong way, it's then I'm like, I didn't do my job. You know, I wanted Nick Lowe to produce a record. He he dropped through uh, years ago and, and uh, uh, pretty soon after I took over the studio. So it must have been like, you know, 2005 or something like that. And, um, you know, he was they called him the basher. Uh, you know much about Nick Lowe? A little bit. I, I'm familiar with his music. Yeah. Well, they call him the bat. He produced like the early Elvis Costello records yeah. and rock pile and all this. And uh, uh, they call him the basher because he just basically let people do it once, twice. And we were done. He just created a, an environment that they could play live in. And he was a good enough musician to know what he had. Right. So he, and people were scared of him, but for the same reason, it sounds like, you know, uh, uh, your thing of let's just get it done. And um, so I, I, I call him and ask him if he, would consider producing record because I don't do that anymore. I don't want to do that. I said, well, that's too bad. I, I really think more people ought to produce like you and I but would, I'd be awesome if, if you would, but if you want, that's fine. We talked for a little while and it sounded like he still loved the studio. So I said, what if you just came by and we just stocked the studio with booze and uh, well, you're not a producer 
you don't have to produce a record. There'll be a guitar there, but you don't have to play it. You can hang out in the room and just kind of help me get through the session. And if you have any ideas, speak up. And basically I did told him everything that a producer would do. He goes, right. well, now if you put it like that, sure. sounds like fun. Uh, <laughs> All the same stuff. I think it just took out the responsibility. Maybe that was it. Yeah. Cause it's, it is a responsibility because your name is on the record and, yeah. and you're responsible for that artist. And, you know, I think, you know, Last on the topic of product, production, um, what's your criteria for taking on someone? Like if somebody, you know, I'm sure you're asked. Four times yeah, I'm not asked as much anymore. I think because the same, the same thing probably goes for uh, like, you know, involvement in the theater world. Like, you know, you're asked so many times and then pretty soon word kind of gets around. It's just, it just feels like it's not something you do. Right. And I think that's the point I've hit. Um a little bit like Nick Lowe, maybe just without uh, saying it, but um, I, I, I will and would do it with the, with the, someone that I thought that I, I could actually um, help. Right. And um, also someone that, that, um, that just seemed absolutely stunningly interesting to me, mm-hmm. you know, um, then, then I, then I would do it. Um, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's what, it, that's what it would, that's what it would take, I think. And, and I can't think of anyone specific, but you know, I, I know like, you know, and I like, uh, you know, but I think about like uh, Amanda Palmer, I, I produced her first solo record mm-hmm. and um, I think it's really good. Um, again, she was, wouldn't say she was scared. I just think that it felt to her that I hadn't maybe done anything. And some of the tracks she was recording sometimes other places. And this was the same thing as with, um, uh, with Sarah Barella. She brought in garage band tracks. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was like, this is beautiful. She's like, yeah, so we can record these. I was like, I don't really know why you would. It's, it's great. Plus, as a female artist, I think she was probably by default placing a lot of um, a lot of faith in a male producer. And this is something I thought this was years ago. I wasn't being a feminist. I was just noticing this this trend. And and I was thinking, you did that. This is your this is your work. Now, yeah. It's not ready for the record. I'll take it and I'll beat the shit out of it through a tube. Uh, uh, amp and speaker like seven yeah. times we re-recorded her vocal through this old rca speaker with a mic on it and i would go to lunch and uh and say joe how many more times can you record it keep doing it right just like a recording of a recording of recording until finally it sounded funky that's all it needed and right. so i considered that production because i was like well she would have gone in the studio and done this other thing and uh, but at the same time, it looked at it. so I guess, you know, I, I, I guess I don't I don't know. But but, but I remember that about the, Amanda Palmer, but she the, the record after I was supposed to produce, but then I couldn't. And she got John Congleton and he killed it. Mm-hmm. She's so lucky I didn't produce her record. <laughs> it's so much better. It's so much better than what I would have done with those particular songs. I did a good job on the one that was before. Well, you know, I mean, yeah. everything happens for a reason. Um, talk to me a little bit about. Uh you know, growing up in the mid Atlantic's Winston Salem, 
you know, that, that circuit. And I always found when I was, where did you come up by the way? I, I grew up in a little town called Utica, New York. Not, not to be confused with Ithaca, New York, which was yeah. our more well-educated uh, Ivy League brethren. We were the, yeah. we the blue-collar. Is it near Saratoga? It's like, yes, it's about 90 minutes from Saratoga, Albany. It's like literally the middle of the state. It's the middle of the state. And it's very yeah. industrial. It was very industrial. Very. Um, so I'll see the signs there. I mean, I, I, I just sold a place in Hudson, New York. Mm-hmm just south of there so yeah right it's a it's it's great you know i mean it was a great place to grow up and you grew up in what winston-salem yeah yeah um you know i it was uh it's it's a a town with a lot of um uh it had a big concentration of money so there was some wealth there right there wasn't as much of a middle class in winston-salem i don't think you know so so it was it it, uh, there, there was that upper crust and then there were essentially the people who were the descendants of the mill factory workers, the people who worked for the uh, 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 tobacco company, uh, R.J. Right. Reynolds. So right. um, uh, the, I think that had an impact because uh, there was stuff. I mean, I, I got to play in a uh, youth orchestra uh, when I was you know, nine or 10 years old um and um had access to all that stuff there was a lot of art arts there was a lot of support for it locally and um there was also a really uh strong kind of working class sense there too like kind of almost sort of pittsburgh style so uh i I think that was just a magic formula for music honestly because like i think of the talent that came from there i mean when i was in high school this band called the dbs you might not know them but they were like new york times number one new band like the year that blondie was 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 big um they were badass i mean what was just such a cool fucking band and then there was a guy named Mitch Easter, who was a producer. He produced REM's first records and uh, had a group called Let's Active. And they were all over the charts and all over MTV. So there was a lot going on there. I thought that the local bands there were all in- international bands. I didn't know there were so many of them. I didn't know that. So I had that. And that's a result of the sort of the equivalent of the Medici family being there and, and that it's all paid for and a good solid like curious, hungry, working class of, of, of artists and musicians. And North Carolina has, uh, has, you know, I, I think both Coltrane and Monk were born in North Carolina. I know when I, I did the North Carolina hall of fame thing it was, uh, um, uh, I was inducted the, the night that, uh, um, oh man, the, the saxophone player for, um, James Brown, Maceo Parker, Maceo Parker. Yeah. yeah was there and he looked younger than me which i was couldn't believe well you look younger than me and no no not at all no i don't think the other way around you know you know, maceo looks younger than both of us and he's like 80 years old <laughs> exactly you know you uh, one of the things um that uh, I, I i read about it, that you that you ran into a guy named will owsley mm-hmm. um uh, when you moved to nashville and i remember i was signed to sony and my A&R guy gave me his record going, this is, this is going to be the next big thing. And I, I just thought he was, his life was tragically cut short, but, but his records were really, you know, interesting and well done for that time period. You know, and what do you think it is about the Mid-Atlantic, the South, 
all of that. And you just explained, you know, like the wealth and, and arts and stuff like that. What do you think it is about those stories that play so well into songs? Because, you know, I've tried to, I've tried to open up a song with I was born in Utica in 1977. It doesn't really sing well. You know what I mean? I, I like it. There's a lot, there's a lot of poetic names, a lot of, a lot of great stories that emanate from that area. What do you, what do you think it is about that? Well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't know, but I mean, blues and country music and many forms of jazz certainly came from the South Uh, or, or if they didn't come from the South, exactly. It was certainly one of the places and it was a hotbed for these kinds of music and I think a lot of it is probably uh, probably has to do with race. Um, and then once you have a um, uh, once you have a tradition, then you've got a tradition. I mean, it grows people who are good at it, who have kids that are good at it. It's not unheard of to be good at it. I think you know, like uh, Owsley was from Alabama, and uh, you know, the difference there, you know, there is a difference. I mean, he comes from uh, a more, just more Southern, uh, more more Southern, um, less artsy than what I came from. Right. Where I came from was, you know, when we met, my idea of making a demo, and I was on Sony at the same time. I was on Sony before uh, Tree. It was a Tree Publishing, and then uh, 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 it was all kind of Paul Worley stuff. I guess you probably know Paul. Yeah. Um, And my demos, and the reason no one's going to pass you mine, was I always made mine on four track, Mm -hmm. and they had a fuck ton of hiss on them and they were just weren't perfect and i wasn't going to make a perfect demo but there, there was but you know like the the southern types in nashville were all down with making a, an amazing demo that would be like a great calling card and i came from a place that didn't get that a right. little more a little more um just a little more independent and and uh I, at the time, and now I understand it, at the time, I couldn't figure out why Bill was spending all this time making demos perfect. And mm-hmm. I was like, you're going to get to the record eventually. And then everything you've done, all the things you think are all tied up with the experience of like slicing these, these eighth notes and, and just don't do that. Just put some, just fucking throw it together. But his method was working <laughs> because I, I was really spinning. In, in Nashville, that was not, you know, that I was, I remember sitting at a, um, at a uh, publishing little meeting that was held trying to figure out what the hell to do with my stuff as, as an artist. And there was an English guy in there. He was a big record guy, it had something to do with the Dixie chicks later on. And um, he goes, uh, Oh, it's unlistenable. Oh, mate, it's unlistenable. This is my, my, I mean, I'm sitting there like, my God, it's my demo tape. Like these are the songs I wrote and they press play. And it was like, can't listen to that shit, mate. Can't listen. Turn that shit off. It's like, wow. One that's rude. And secondly, ouch and turned it off. And then the, the, the guy who was the Sony guy said, 
it's okay. It's okay. We got something. We got something good here. Check this out. And he puts in the semantics, which was uh, Owsley and my friend Millard, who I, I put together as, right. and they played that and they're like, Oh, now that's music. And I, I was just like, oh my God. I'm never going to get anywhere. <laughs> Wait, you but know, they, had, a- they had that down that, and that, that is a social difference. The I'm happy to be at work. I'm going to make the right kind of card. I'm going to uh, succeed at this. And I was just kind of like on another planet. Well, you know, that's the thing. It's like, you know, um, uh, Michael Rhodes, uh, legendary Nashville bass player, plays in my band. And he's played on more sessions in this town on bass than I, I think he's number one or two as far as total sessions. Yeah. He's like, man, if I, he, goes, he goes, I would get hired to make these demos. And then I get hired to make the same record as a record playing the exact same shit with the exact same people you're like that's what i'm talking about (laughs) it's so crazy it's you know it's it it doesn't it works it does it works or it worked in nashville i mean now now long term it didn't work as well you know like 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 for me it was better i did it the right way for me you know like like it, it it and i just found it demoralizing to go into a studio and do this song and dance and know that when I did it for real, that it was just going to be a zombie version. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fuck and that. it's going to be, it's, it's going to be a very, very vanilla. It, you, you, the, all the inspiration you is on the demo. Yeah. That yeah. nobody ever heard. But that's when you enter as your style of producer producing, which is we're going to, we're going to do this quick. The demo's old news, and and where and my method maybe would uh, the the reason that maybe that would work in a different way would be, I'm going to use the demo and we're going to make it sound okay, or we're going to discover something completely new has nothing to do with the demo, which is what scares people the most. It scares record companies because they it scares everybody because they're 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 there because we like the demo. Catch twenty two is, but we don't want to use the demo for the album. Okay, <laughs> yeah, right. We. We love everything about you. Now just change everything and we'll be happy. <laughs> Don't you find the, 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 the kind of uh, order of insurance policies and their shrinking guarantees interesting in the process mm-hmm. in that like everyone feels like the next step is going to solve what the step before had wrong. So it's kind of like, okay, the demo, we love the song, but it can improve. How? Well, I don't know, but it needs to do better because we're not going to put that shit out like it was. Like this needs to do better. I'm scared. I'm scared. Let's do it again. So right. then the, that that producer is taxed with the with the uh, uh, having to uh, burdened with having to do something that wasn't the demo, but is still the demo. Mm-hmm. Then the mixer has to come in, and it's like we've got this great rough mix. Oh, why don't you use a rough mix? Well, it needs to be like the rough mix, but better. So then the mixer is this guy that you pay and the insurance policy is intense. So there are more label people there. Everyone's more and more scared about what will happen. It gets turned louder and louder. It's compressed more. And then the guy's like, I've done all I can. It's gone through the cheese grinder. Take it. It's going to the mastering engineer. And then everyone moves over except three more people. And they squeeze into the room of the mastering engineer's place. And they're expecting something that didn't happen in the demo, didn't happen in the session, didn't happen in the mix, to happen at the at, in the mastering session. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, it, it's, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing. And I understand why. It's scary. It's a scary process. That's why. Well, nobody wants to lose their job. 
And that's right. the thing. And most of the people that I ran into in the music business that told me I would never amount to anything. My name is too long. Uh, I have a, a blah, 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 blah. Most of these people are in some sort of securities or day traders or selling furniture. You your, 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 your name is an asset. Sounds awesome. You, you could call it, you could call yourself John Amanapia. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, you know, exactly. You know, it, it, and I'm like going, and, and uh, it, it was, and I recently found out that her name, she changed her name, but I always used to use the, 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 the reference. I go, if, if Nichelle and Deggy Ocello can, 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 can work in the music business, Joseph Leonard Bonamassa can as well. And then, and then my friend tells me, Oh no, she changed her. I'm like, Oh shit. The whole thing's upside down. I can't. I can't. Oh, yeah. That's funny. She changed it to something that's she, she changed it to the equivalent of the Fiona Apple album title. And, right. And, and, right. Engelbert Humperdinck, not his real name. He awesome. changed it. He's Welsh. Who knows? Who knows? Humperdinck. So, I mean, like talking about that, like when I first heard Ben Folds 5, I loved it because it was in an era of guitar driven music. Now here comes the piano driving the whole thing. But, but a big grand piano, heavy tone yeah. with a distorted bass. It's like if Cream, if Eric Clapton played piano instead of, instead of guitar, you know? Yeah. I just thought it was revolutionary because it was heavy, but it had a pop sensibility and it was rebellious. And my question to you, not to revisit the past, is are you a natural contrarian? Do you look at things in a way... Yeah let's fuck this thing up and do something different and, and ruffle some feathers. It has to have a, um, a sense of what I always call breaking the law, breaking the law, breaking the law. Um, it, it has to have a little bit of that. Um, I don't think the whole thing needs to be like that, but no. I'm uncomfortable until I find um, the, the, the tug somewhere. You know, I think that's it. I think, I think, and, and um, Benfield's five was, um, was very um, pre um, um, pre considered uh, pre um, pre meditated. Mm -hmm. um, I had been struggling uh, with my songs for nearly ten years. Uh, Nashville didn't, you know. I learned a lot there, and ultimately, I it, it was a big part of the journey. But I wasn't getting where I was supposed to get there. And I moved yeah. to New York. I moved to New York because I found out that. Uh, even though no one was left uh, in uh, Sony uh, tree uh, in Nashville that was going to stick with me anymore. They were, they'd done it. Like they'd spent money and nothing happened that I had a lot of fans in New York that were passing my tape around mm -hmm. and they were listening to it as if it was real music instead of a demo tape, which I was thrilled about. So I moved up there while I was up there in, uh, in New York, just kind of schlepping a electric uh, uh, Wurlitzer, a Wurlitzer piano on a, on a dolly. Nice. While I was subway. doing that. Love it. What's that? On the subway too. That's great. Uh, ev everywhere. Yeah. Great. Um, while I was doing that, um, the um, music business changed immediately with uh, Nirvana. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought, Jesus, my songs would get a whole new life if all this music that I'm so excited about was the bed. And, I, and I'd already, Bill Owsley was the last person to really play any guitar on my demos or anything. 
I I realized I wasn't a guitar oriented person. So I had been leaving the guitars out, but my music had sounded much more like uh, peanuts music. It sounded more like Vince Guaraldi. And I knew that, um, uh, that a bass player that played with the pick, because I've been like, I mean, carrying my pick. Yeah, right. I've been doing that. Um, I'd, I'd had a, a fuzz pedal and had been playing bass through the fuzz pedal with my music in the studio yeah. uh, to make my demos. So I just looked for a guy who was, uh, you know, when I moved to North Carolina, asked who's a legendary, I need, I need the guy who's the just metal shredder, like yeah. just, in indie rock or metal shredder, completely not my vibe at all. My brother said, Robert Sledge is your guy. Everyone knows this guy is insane. And I met him and it was like, okay, the, yeah. we got it. This is it. So it was kind of like I, when you took the piano out of what we did, it sounded like Jesus lizard or something. It's It really was heavy. You put me in and it's like, the, the cheers theme song comes back to the music, but well, will you take me out? Like hearing them do sound check was, was like black Sabbath. Well, it was, you know, it, it, to me, it's like every great artist act has a foil. And mm. in your, in your case, the piano was the foil. Like you said, if you yeah. just played the piano tracks, it would sound, it would be in a much different context. If you just played the bass tracks, it was, you know, basically like it sounded like Lemmy meets Jack Bruce or Felix Popularity yeah. and a, a, a raucous drummer who had Mitch Mitchell tendencies. Oh. And I, I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> They're both so good. And this guy's are just such great musicians. And, and a great rhythm section in, in, in a style that isn't played anymore. And then you put the, this big, fat, clean piano sound over it and the songs, which are the most important things, and you're singing. It, it, to me, it, it, it blew me away. I remember seeing you on VH1 and it was like a live concert. It was some sort of like back when they actually aired music and not, you know, teen mom pregnancies and <laughs> the I real songs about that, of so Anchorage, you know? <laughs> um, and and um, it, it, I was like, I was like, wow, that is something that has not been done in a context, in a lot of music that has been done. And it's like, and, and I kind of was jealous that, and, and felt bad that I was a guitar player. I'm like, shit, I can't do that because if I put guitar on it, it ruins the whole thing. It ruins the balance of the power trio, yeah. piano-driven power trio. And, and Well, you're I, right. You're exactly right about the, uh, about the guitars, about the no room for guitar. It's no. just no room. It's like if the piano player, you know, I think, and I hadn't considered this as much at the time, but, you know, when you go back and you listen to the piano driven music, uh, rock and roll before right. um, you, you listen to it carefully and you take driven out. Mm-hmm. That was the whole thing. And because as soon as you've got a guitar in there, it's obvious who needs to steer this. I yeah. mean, when you play with a guitar, it's like, Okay, that's definitely when we take the piano out, now we're rocking. And you put the piano back in and you're kind of like, okay, well, there's not room for that. We need to like maybe make the guitar in unison with the bass line and the left hand. So it, it starts to sound, you know, like I'm moving out. Da, 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 yeah. da, da, yeah. da, like it has to be an orchestrated uh, thing like that. Or you go, the other example, Elton John, you go Saturday night's all right for fighting. Boy, yeah. that's a piano rocker. No, listen for the piano. If you can hear it, it's in there way down because they knew the guitars drove it. So by not having a guitar in the band, 
I was playing like a wild man and our fidelity dropped. Yeah. You can't have a hi-fi record with the piano being that busy because it's shitting all over the dynamic range of the recording. Right. I but ruined it, our recordings. <laughs> it works. You know, I'm, it's, it's, it's funny we're talking about this because I'm, I'm in, I just came back from a power trio rehearsal. We're going to do some shows and stuff like that, do a, a DVD. And I had not played power trio for about a decade. And the last incarnation of my band was nine piece, three singers, two horns, wow. drums, you know, Reese Winans on keyboards. And, you know, my guitar rig is different, you know, and it's been a decade. The fact that I can literally, like you said, shit all over the music. Yeah. And it, and it works because if I don't, it sounds like, it doesn't. It doesn't sound like anything, and it, it's 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 a it's a it's a real art to play that way, you know. Oh, it's a total art to play that way. I mean, you don't want to listen to the police's uh, board recordings. There's no way that the police their board recordings sound very good for the most part. They yeah. probably sound really bad, you know. Yeah. Um, there's that era of Van Halen where it goes from where overdubbing the rhythm guitar after the era of Eddie Van Halen switches from rhythm to play his lead. And while he's playing lead, there's no rhythm behind him. Right. Yeah. These are interesting things that you have to philosophical things you have to deal with when you're doing a power trio, like you're covering these bases and it's, it can be wildly exciting for the audience because one, there's a storyline that you're following. If you play a solo and you're a guitar, there's nothing else going on below you are it. And yeah. there is, there's real freedom in that. But when you listen back to the board tape, you're kind of like boom, 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 behind in a solo. Plus you're playing in with an intensity that's intended for a, you were meant to be there. Like, like you had to be there kind of vibe. And that's the thing about a trio that makes it difficult unless you, unless you do it a certain way. I mean, a, 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 a piano trio works really well as jazz yeah and it works really well as jazz because there's some things that aren't happening one usually the snare isn't playing two and four in jazz it's just right. ride symbol the ride symbol is in a whole orchestra and it's just all the sound of that overtone of the ride symbols almost everything in the groove of that is the drum set so you've really reset everything and the piano player is not playing the left hand they're yeah. really not playing bass they're they're comping and the bass is so it has a different thing robert and i would, would play like I would play my left hand as if I was the, the guitar and the bass. Mm -hmm. And I spread out with a, a, a fifth between these two fingers and another third above it, uh, a, a tenth uh, yeah. over it, which is most people don't have that, that reach. So I'm playing like either you call it cellos and double basses, or I'm playing baritone guitar and bass guitar. And Robert was then floating on top of that or causing explosions down below it, whichever way was an engineer's nightmare. Yeah, and, and diametrically opposed from traditional logic, which I love yeah. because yeah. you, a lot of times in Ben Folds 5, were the bottom end. Your, your, right. your left hand was the bottom end, and the yeah. bass was, and you know, and when I listen to my favorite records, Cream you know, all the great power trails, even Jimi Hendrix, you look at Noel Redding, he's not playing all the way down. He's playing up. He's, he's augmenting yeah. the guitar and it makes this big fat sound. Well, I mean, look at the drummers in these cases too. I mean, like with Jimi Hendrix, 
uh, Mitch, Mitch Mitchell. He's, he's not playing correctly. He's all over the shop and he's like, his drums are tuned up like 10 cans. Yeah. And he's playing all the stuff between the time is, is very fluid. And the same thing goes for Emerson Lake and Palmer. I mean, listen to Carl Palmer, Carl Palmer playing drums on that stuff. And it, you, once one person has decided to leave, you know, leave their post, then everyone, (laughs) it creates insanity. It really does, which I love, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a bygone era because now everything is, you know, everything's cut to a grid. Everything has to be, and it's, it's you know I I miss those days. Do you make uh, when you're recording these bands kind of live? Are you recording that stuff to grid or to click? I I, I I I record to grid, and I'll tell you why. Because I have the two drummers I use, Anton Fig and Greg Morrow, um, can swing on a grid right. like nobody else, and it doesn't it doesn't matter. We could we could we could go one two three four and. But Anton Fig is his own grid. He is his own grid. <laughs> because that's your watch by that guy and i like to be able to cut between tanks and to try to encapsulate the magic and you know because there's certain things and by the time the third fourth take comes along it's over them it becomes it becomes nashville it 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 was new york it was chicago and by the fourth take it's nashville because it's all neat and tidy and gritty. you know we used to say uh in north carolina before i even moved to nashville this was just something we said even if we're making a little four track recording or something to put too many mics on something mm-hmm. or to uh, make something stereo that doesn't need to be stereo, anything that's excessive, or you've got a golden microphone. Yeah. We called it the full Nashville treatment. You're right. <laughs> and when I moved to Nashville, that was a concern of mine. I think a little bit why I stuck with my four track uh, 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 demos when I could was the sense that I would get lost. And I remember the first time I mic'd the, uh, I, um, Leslie cabinet in stereo. And I thought I was going to go to hell. I was like, that's it. I'd put two mics on it. And I was like, I love this. This is like, this is like crack. The full Nashville treatment is, has totally corrupted me. It does work a little bit, you know, it works awesomely. It works awesome. <laughs> so, you know, a couple, couple of things before we wrap up. Um, one, you know, I'm a guitar collector. I've been a guitar collector my whole life. And I get in discussions with other collector people and they're like, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, guitars are great. They're easy to collect. You know, it's like, I don't know any piano collectors. And I'm like, I do. I go, I go, Ben Folds. Because I remember working at, 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 at uh, your studio. Some and of my pianos were there. <laughs> some of your pianos were there. I remember yeah. counting nine grand ish things baby grands in a room that held not only our gear but you know when did you get into piano collecting and 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 part of my you know because i i always hate when people say why do you need all these things you know yeah so the, the the thing is i understand it is what what what's the difference between you know a Bosendorf or a Steinway or just that funky upright with the tax on it that was in a saloon? I mean, it, they all serve a purpose, and and how do you yeah. speak them out? Well, they are very different. We don't. It's 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 an intense luxury to have that many large black yeah. wooden cases that weigh a ton. Um, but you know, there was a real practical 
reason that that era came about. Now I've right. shrunk considerably since then. Um, but for instance, the barroom piano, that piano um, I bought for fifty dollars uh, in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and uh, they rolled it in. The, the the guy who sold it to me was embarrassed. He wanted to sell me a Yamaha at the shop, and I saw this next to the toilet mm-hmm. uh, uh, before I left because he was trying to sell me that. Basically, we were recording uh, the whatever and ever Amen record, and I okay. just wanted an upright. And the guy was just all into the Yamahas. Anyway, I, without even tuning it, we recorded brick on that piano. Right. So, and, and, and that was our, for anyone who doesn't know, that was our, our, our hit. And it was recorded on, on about six tracks of audio. And one of those tracks was the, uh, was the mic on that old $50 piano. Is that the and, piano you played on Saturday Night Live? Yeah. Because I remember seeing you guys play Brick on Saturday Night Live, and you had an upright. I was, it's it's interesting you bring that up. We brought that up. That's its own, that's its own story and a, a and a terrible mistake. Uh, but um, yeah, you know um, uh, that that taught me that okay, I've been recording everything on this Steinway, but suddenly this old Steger and Sons it wasn't even tuned makes the radio. And Andy Wallace, the legendary engineer, mix engineer, was pulling up the tracks. He wasn't there at the recording. And he goes, that's golden. Yeah. I was like, that's that shitty piano. So there are uses uh, for a piano like any guitar. You can look at Guitar World on the side of a stage uh, of a a band and go, why are there 30 guitars there? And I think it's funny Mm -hmm. and kind of ridiculous. However... They all, they're like a tool that all sound not better than each other, but they sound different for yes. different things. And the same holds true of a piano. It doesn't have to be like all different makes. They can all be Steinways. They can all be different from different eras or the hammers are different or the length is different or the wood is dried differently, but they seriously sit in sounds very, very differently. And I found in the studio it was a bit of a storage bin for my pianos to begin mm-hmm. with. And then people would use the studio and like that they had the choice. No yeah. one ever has a choice. They come in and there's one, maybe two pianos. And they really learned that, wow, you know, like sometimes I'd make a record and one song would want this piano and, and everything else was recorded on something else. Uh, what I'll also say about it was that it wasn't like I was purchasing these pianos usually for any reason that makes that w- w- would be expected. It's that I would have been on tour and in order to cover a tour, we would find it would be cheaper to purchase a piano for that tour. Right. And use the piano rather than rent every night. Right. That was usually the reason, especially when it came to Europe. And I found that, you know, like we'd had a a couple of pianos in storage in Europe. We had one in storage and two in storage in Australia. Now there's one in Japan. Pretty soon I started having all these pianos and eventually found opportunities to cargo them back. Yeah. So, you know, basically we had something that was a a, a money saver and suddenly I had a bunch of pianos. So that's if I was a collector, I would have a Chickering. I would have a a Beckstein. I would have a, a, a Bose. I would have a Fazioli and all these different kinds of piano, but I've usually stuck with Baldwin's and with uh, uh, Steinway's. Bruce Horn. And, and that, and, and that, well, and now with Yamaha's because they took over Bosendorfer right. and they're making insanely good pianos now. I mean, Yamaha's always been really good, but they, to, to my ear, Yamaha has always had a certain sense of 
plastic overtone in their history that now is gone, man. Right. They have, they have nailed it now. They just, and I don't say that just because that's the piano. I prefer to play a new Yamaha over anything right now. Yeah. And it stays in tune, you know, cause that's a, that's a big factor with a vintage piano or anything like that. It's just like, it's, and it's a working piano. It's, yeah. it's, you know, which is always what they were supposed to be. You need a piano that fits into the Yamaha understands that they're making records. So yeah. they're making a tone that sits in the record. And now that they've got uh, 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 the, the Bosendorfer input, their concert grands are, are sick. So they're making great records. I have my favorite instrument that I own is actually a guitar. And it's, it's an old Japanese uh, guitar from, I think it was made in 1959. Uh, you may not, you may or may not know the guitar. Let me go grab it and show you because um it's fallen apart and I have to find someone to cosmetically put it together. It's a plastic piece of shit. It sounds so great. <laughs> right. I love it. I love this guitar. Hang on. You may be able to tell me why it's I'm, I'm, my audio is unplugged. Let me plug this back in. Yeah. This is it. Who made it's, it? It's short scale. Um, Looks like a Kawhi or something like that, but it, it's, it's a, a knockoff it, of a Supro. It's called a Gaiatone. Gaiatone. Okay, great. And it and they, they was made uh, by um, it was made by um, people who didn't have access to what they were copying, so the scale's wrong. Right. And they uh, they just went by pictures. Um, but pieces of it are uh, the plastic pieces are falling off of it now and everything. I mean, the pickups sound amazing. I don't know. Is it okay that they're rusty looking like that? Yeah, it's no problem. It's not it's, as long as it works, you know, that's the thing. It's like a lot, a lot of my road guitars are just, they're, they're old decrepit things that just work and come back for more. They just, they, there's no quitting them. You can tell I don't talk to many guitar players. I'm going to like pick your brain about this. The bridge is super tough to deal with. Mm -hmm. But if I change that, will that change the magic of the guitar? Yes. Sometimes the struggle in the instrument is what makes it great. If they all play perfect with the nice frets and perfect intonation, then it's just another perfectly playing generic guitar. It's mm. like, if you look at like Hound Dog Taylor, if you look at like, oh God, I mean, even like, you know, Howl Wolf and, and a lot of these guys, they played stuff that was tough to play that, mm. that I would pick up and go, I couldn't get anything on this, but you hear the struggle in the music, you know, Charlie mm. Pratt, same thing. I did. Oh, believe me, it's going to be struggle when I play guitar, no matter what I play. Right, exactly. <laughs> You'll hear the struggle. <laughs> yeah, it's it, yeah, me and the me and the piano don't have a good relationship either. I could play in the key of G for about thirty seconds, and then I, I have to default. You know, I have no timing. You know what's amazing about guitar? I mean, I've been playing a lot of guitar since COVID. I bought this guitar maybe about a year ago, and I was so in love with the instrument. Um, I'm a bassist, so I do know something yeah. about the guitar. But um, so is extra two strings. Is how light it is. Mm -hmm. it's such a masculine instrument and big 
big hairy dudes play it in rock bands with hairy chest and strut right. around the stage. And I'm playing this thing going, this is what they were doing. Right. Ding. Yep. Ding. I've, 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 I've shoulder back wrist issues from standing and beating the living shit out of a piano, which is the sissy instrument. <laughs> we have amps that do all the work for us. God. We have big loud amps. But how do you, how do you, how, how, how do you explain the, 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 the theatrics on stage? How do you square that with how lightly you need to actually hit the instrument? When I hit the instrument as hard as I hit a bass, it just shits out. Yeah. Like how, how does that happen? How do, how do artists like Pete Townsend, Pete Townsend, Angus, um, even people like Hendrix, they didn't use heavy strings. They used, they, 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 there are, there's a difference between a guitarist and an electric guitarist. Acoustic guitar players like Tony Rice and, and, and that, that kind of, that kind of discipline. Those are big strings. It'll That's what I like out. to play. Yeah. yeah. It'll wear you out. I'm an electric guitar player. So I've learned to, to use the guitar and the amp as one thing in, in it's, it's a symbiotic relationship. So you're, your Gibbons, Billy Gibbons is a perfect example. He uses the lightest strings possible. So he, he uses the amp and he makes it bloom and he just uses his internal barometer to make that sound. Mm. And it's just big fat sound. And like, if I picked up his guitars, it would just, I would, it, they would choke and I'd be out of tune, but he has this tactility in him that makes it him. Same Amazing. thing. It's, it's, it's the same thing with piano players, you know, like they're, they're all, you could sit down at the same piano, five different guys will sound five different ways. Yeah. Tactile instrument, you know, you know. Well, I just think that's amazing that on one hand, you've got the rest of your gear, your, your, your person, all your limbs and everything are existing in normal gravity. Yes. And, and then this and this thing is so incredibly light. If I sneezed, it's too much. Right. I think that's amazing. I've no one ever explained that to me before. And I was putting tracks down on the guitar, kind of trying to like, I play acoustic guitar. I've always yeah. just played that. That's yeah. I get that. And I was playing and, and, and I, I would think, Oh, that's not working. And I play it back and it's like, God, that sounds big as a house. I sound like I'm beating the shit out of it. And I'm just like, going. Mm. so I'm learning. It's it's a thing. Before we ramp up, uh, yeah. tell me about your work with the Kennedy Center and your work with the symphonies, because, you know, not only are you a, a percussion player, drummer, bass player, guitarist, piano player, you're also a composer and, and, and work in the symphonic world, which to me is like that's a whole nother level. And mm. I, 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 unless I'm completely backwards, you, you work with the Kennedy Center and yes, you're yes. and you're an advisor, which, which yeah. takes a and lot to get that call. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, I mean, I took my advisory role very seriously and, um, you know, uh, made sure I was part of, um, when I put together shows, curated shows that I was actually there for them, that I participated in them, that I choose and work with the orchestrators, go through all the scores mm -hmm. to try to, um, to, to, to make an evening translate to an audience right. that I would understand the same, you know, if someone was going to make the leap of judgment to go, well, he's had a career, unlikely career playing piano, which is living room furniture and classical jazz stuff in punk rock clubs. 
maybe he's a good uh, in- ambassador from one right. genre to the other. And that's the assumption. So uh, I know the orchestra well enough. So uh, I grew up in it. So I just, that's been my, that's been my, my, my job. I mean, that there, I'll try not to go on too long about this because I, I can, I can tend to when it's this subject, because I'm so interested in it. And there's a lot to know, but you know, the symphony orchestra has traditionally in our lifetimes and a little bit before struggled to find new audience as technology and music, popular music has yes. taken a lot of the steam out of, or has taken the audience and changed people's ears. Um, it has always been a normal thing for the orchestra to try to figure out how to relate to a new audience. So it's not um, revolutionary what I do with Kennedy Center, but I believe that my detailed, emphatic approach has been unusual and has, has yielded good, good stuff, I think. I'm really proud of it. It's what I spent the most time on over the last three, five years until the pandemic and the Kennedy Center was hit as badly as anyone in the world. You can't, you know, can you imagine what it costs to just keep the power on in that place? And I, no I a, one stepped into it for a year? Mm-hmm. I, have a, I have an apartment one block away from Lincoln Center, and I think that every time I walk by it. That's a beautiful neighborhood. I it's love it up there. But, but yeah. you know, it's, 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 it, it's insane. You know, Carnegie Hall shut down two seasons. Not cheap rooms to operate. No, no, it's a, it's a tragedy. It's, it's, it's terrible. They'll get back, but it's, it's absolutely horrific. Um, but yeah, so that's that my involvement has been um, Regina Spector. Yeah. Translates to an audience is intelligent, honest, and a great musician. Awesome. Why can't she sit on the same night as her favorite Russian composers? Now there are actually reasons, and that's the that's the thing. You don't just put them together. You actually have to create the environment in which that works. Because Rimsky-Korsakov does not sound good through amplifiers. <laughs> One of the greatest uh, orchestrators of all time. He did not anticipate, you know, uh, low end coming out of uh, 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 a line array system. That is not the way he was thinking, and it shits on the orchestra in every aspect to subject them to being amplified because they're in essence a mixing console. What it does to break down their environment and their culture to add the, uh, to add a perceptible um, uh, sound reinforcement uh, to it is the breakdown that kills it. Mm-hmm. So I start there. Yeah. Uh, and then like with anything, like you don't have a good movie without a good script. You don't have a good or- orchestra uh, a performance without great orchestration and the great orchestration has to understand the environment that they're orchestrating for. And uh, there are all kinds of other social cultural divides between orchestra and rock world that start with the booking agent, mm-hmm. go through the unions, go through the artistic advisory committee, the sound people, yeah. the producers of the show and ultimately the artist uh, and the audience. And, you know, a classical composer was just some, usually a dude, was some dude who's dead, who was very good at what they did, who yeah. had a story, who was very relatable. But we don't hear that music that way. 
So what you have to do is find a thread between a modern artist who is just some dude or some chick who is making music that we understand because we share the context. If you can draw those two together, you'll hear people crying in moments in, in, in classical music that they never understood before. And that is so fulfilling for me to see yeah. an audience of 22 year old kids, 25 and then older rock people in there listening to something that they'd heard, but they'd never heard before. Yeah. That I can quit. My work is done. Like I love, I love those shows because they all accomplish that. And, and the reason they accomplish that is because I spend so much time on it and because we have so much money to work with. Yeah. These shows lose an incredible amount of money. We go out and find, you know, they go out and find donors for these specific shows. And I fly in two or three uh, orchestrators. We have extra rehearsals, hotel rooms for everyone. And we spend an extra two days in the hotel making our arrangements as good as the Stravinsky as we can possibly get, which is a lot closer than you think. Okay, I'm going to shut up about that because uh, you'll be sorry if I keep going. Well, that's insane. Well, that's, that's a great great thing you're doing i mean do you ever encounter any resistance from constant from the from the tried and true this isn't how mozart wrote it you know this isn't well it comes from the other side i'm a little more on team mozart about this and that's that's the thing like an orchestra can become jaded really quickly they know what kind of gig this is it's like they're like they say it on the sketch or there's like you know when i first started playing orchestras i've been doing it for nearly two decades now uh, well, I was doing it when I was a kid, but like as a, as a rock artist, I would be coming down the hall and I would hear uh, two uh, musicians saying, you better put some uh, uh, earplugs in. And I heard this guy stands on his piano and cusses. He's a fucking idiot. <laughs> uh, like I would hear that and they would say, let's go to rehearsal J, which is, you know, ABCD to J, J uh, uh, in the rehearsal. They, they mark this stuff in scores. Someone would invariably say, oh, J for joke. I mean, I was walking into a hostile environment a lot of times, but actually I'm more on team Mozart. And I'll tell you why, because they come in and they're jaded because they know what kind of gig it is. They see the the mics that they're going to have to clip on. They see all the wires. They see the lights that they don't like because it casts shadows on their stuff. And they see uh, they see the the, uh, PA system. They stuff their ears. They slump down in their seats and they brace themselves for a night of shitty music. Right. So uh, what I realize is that they play in their environment much better for good reasons. The problem is, is rock music is not written for their environment and their music is not written for, but you won't have a good orchestra show if the orchestra is not in their environment. So you have to, now the problem is, is that you find yourself on team Mozart fighting the actual orchestra machine every time because they're like, trust me, we do this every night. We did three rock artists last week and we had the music of Pokemon and we've got uh, John Williams uh, coming uh, you know, uh, next week. We know what we're doing. Uh, and to them, I say, you don't know all, all, everything and I don't either, but why don't we go back to Mozart for a second or at least back to, you know, uh, Stravinsky era and and make sure that you have an environment that's going to work. Their problem is, is they're so used to it. They're like, you say that, 
but you'll come in and suck because you need the amps and you need this and you need all these different things. And so the response to that is, you're right, I do suck. And that's why I'm going to work super hard with orchestrators to actually get it to the condition that you need. But it has to, we have to, we have to agree on an environment and a condition. And they want to default, and then they've got someone, they the union, which I I'm I'm pro-union, yeah. but the union comes in and thinks like unions, which I, I I'm pro-union, I'm anti-union thinking. Right. But they come in with all this backup shit because they get paid to come up with their backup shit. And I'm like, take the, take the speakers off. No, someone's going to want them. No, no. If you start, if you go down that, it's a slippery slope. Anyway, I could go on for a long time, but I've come up with ways to deal with these fault lines and they're all very, very specific. And I know who to call first. I know that I need to get there early to tell them that even though they said they wouldn't put the speakers on stage, they have to take them off again and on and on. Yeah. I mean, you, you, the first time is a rough ride. The second time gets a little easier. By the time you do it three or four times, you're like, okay, I got your number. And then they, then you gain their trust, which is that that's a, that's a big thing. It gets back to where we started. And then they, and then they're a new orchestra next time you play too. So uh, the people that you played with the time before it's the sock has re-knitted itself. And so I find, you know, that every time is, is, is like this. And, and, you know, with my touring, we can, we constantly try to improve humbly my orchestration. Mm-hmm. I assume that it's all wrong and not because I think I need to pick at it, but because I, 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 I feel we're going, I'm going into halls like, you know, in Pittsburgh and, you know, Cleveland and all and, and, and St. Louis, you're going into halls that, that the, the very best musicians of all time, Rachmaninoff, have they come through and played these things. Right. I come through with my shitty music. I need to keep making it better. Yeah. And it has to get there. And that's what I work at. That's that was my attitude at Carnegie Hall. I was like, yeah. well, we're here today, folks. You know? <laughs> I've never played Carnegie. It's a loud room. It's a yeah. it, we did it. We did an acoustic band in there because there's That's no smart, and and it was even that was a loud experience. Um, but see, now you're feeling my pain. And the thing is, is that a, a string quartet is going to sound gorgeous in there. Yes. Um, and so, why does that sound gorgeous? And why does why does our, our shitty rock music sound shitty in there? You know, and 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 there are reasons. There are ways that we can go. Wow, you know what? It's not shitty rock music. It's actually really good stuff. It needs to be orchestrated for the environment that we're in. The amps need to be treated differently. You know what I love? You'll, you'll probably like this story, uh, even though it's a not, it's kind of a non-story, it'd be a good thing to wrap up on, uh, is my piano teacher in college was very old and he was pretty eccentric and he was awesome. And uh, he had grown up in Texas, but was a promising young composer uh, uh, then on the West Coast by this time, they got sent to uh, to study with Madame Boulanger uh, by uh, uh, by uh, uh, Cof- Copeland, uh, mm-hmm. Aaron Copeland. So he was in the in the quilt, like yeah. he was. He had a nervous breakdown. All that to say that when he was in high school, um, a man did a tour to show everyone the new thing, which was an electric guitar. 
So he went to the gymnasium with all the kids and they assembled at the assembly. And there's this great anticipation. Everyone actually got quiet for once. He told the story so great. And a guy brought out a guitar. It was very thin and it had a wire. And when they plugged the wire in and the man put this, this guitar on and the wire went to a speaker on the other side of the room and they turned it on and they adjusted the electronics. Right. And he played the first note and the sound came out of the box. Right. And his retelling of that was such a miracle, the miracle of electricity and the miracle of this whole thing that it reminds you, it reminds me the way his enthusiasm was of how you would deal with Carnegie Hall. Yeah. Yeah. It was the absolute reverse. It was like, yeah. it was like I hit the acoustic guitar and I'm like, oh, you know, I would sing without the PA. I'm like, oh. And then Anton. Yes he was playing percussion with us and, and half a drum set. And he was using one of those, like, you know, they're like the, the a group of sticks together. So it was like, it wasn't so the loud. plastic things. The yeah. Plastic. Yeah. And he hit his snare and it was like a, it was like a gun going off. This is going to be a, this is going to be a long two nights, but we, you, you make it work because you have to respect where you are and you can't, you can't just square peg round hole and go, ah, just, you know, like the Blues Brothers, that's do a normal set because it could be a horrible experience for you and the audience. That's right. And that by the time the 90s rolled around was probably our worst attribute that we were almost all bands were unwilling to uh, to turn down. Mm -hmm. That was it. That was it. And people would old old folks would say that they'd say for this radio show in this small room, could you turn down? We're like, fuck, no, turn it up. Fuck you. Yeah. And we played through it. That's the dumbest. That's so that's not rebellious. That's just stupid. The original, the uh, rock music that was as rebellious as anything and the, and the jazz and blues records that came before it, you know, I mean, if they hit the snare drum too loud, it would bounce the, oh, when they're making the acetate, yeah. it would bounce it right out of the groove. That's why when you listen to it, those guys are like tapping it, but they got attitude. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's like you stand there and saying, upright bass is here they had hash like on sun studios it's like they they had little x's guitar goes here it's up to two the amp is on two we've already established the amp is on two you, you know steve cropper plays the amp on two and and so did elvis you know and that was yeah. it you know it's, it's it's a great thing ben thanks for being here man it's a it's 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 great to make your acquaintance and we have a lot of mutual friends and yeah in uh, uh, any plans of getting back to the U.S. soon? I know you're, you've been in Australia for a year. Yeah, been stuck here in this uh, library. Right. Um, not really. I mean, it depends on I. You know, it depends on when work brings me back. Right. It's a little awkward because uh, in the states, it was way worse. There, there haven't been any community. I haven't heard of any community COVID cases here in two or three weeks right in the whole country and and before that there might be one or two everyone flip out over one or two so it's been very safe here but as a result there's there's we don't have the the vaccine the world did not prioritize australia for the vaccine right and actually australia is actually sending a lot of their vaccine up to papua new guinea who actually has an issue and we don't have an issue here problem is is when i go back I'm traveling back into the jungle with, without being vaccinated. I'm not really willing to, to, to do that. 
Yeah. It'd be one thing if I was going home or something, but I don't have a home to go to anymore over there. So living in cabs, living in hotels and airports and stuff. So all, all that to say when I can get a shot mm-hmm. and when I have work to go back to, I'll go back and right. we've stopped guessing. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, I thought we were going to be back a year ago and, and that's, I've, so there you go. Yeah. I mean, I, I, are you recording? You're still, you're doing albums and, and, and in motion now. We did an album in New York city um, a couple of weeks ago and um, everybody had masks on and uh, you know, you know, I'm trying to do it in as safe as way possible. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to keep life in motion now. I mean, like when the pandemic started, I mean, I'm fortunate enough to where I could just say, you know what, it's been a good run. I'm out, you know, 44 years old. I'll go retire and, and, and start an antique shop, sell some of this crap on the walls. And <laughs> you sell some of my pianos on commission while you're at it. No, no problem. 5% commission. No problem. And uh, the, it, it, but I was like, you know, I, I cannot acquiesce to that. I'm not ready mm. for that. You know, so we raised yeah. a bunch of money last year, raised almost a half a million dollars for, for musicians in need, gave it all away. So, and then this year shows up and we're like, well, we got to make a record. So let's try to do it as safe as possible. Let's not, let's not just stick our head in the sand and, and wait. So we're, we're, we're not like a maverick, but we're not just sitting there going, well, we're going to be the last to go out. So we're kind of in this brackish water of, of, you know, doing things and, and, yeah, you know, it's yeah, getting yeah. more normal every day. I think it's a combination of the vaccine and, and people are just frankly tired of it. And, and, and it's, we couldn't have fucked this thing up more if we tried and, and it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. It's unfortunate. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's one of the saddest for, uh, unforced errors I've seen in my life and just needless suffering, but that's Need a whole other story. And, and it's, but, at the, but at the end of the day, it, 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 it is what it's, it, it is what it is. And it's, be it <laughs> you <is>. said it, <laughs> it is what it is because yeah. the, there's no going back. It's, it's like when yeah. you, at the very beginning, when you had the opportunity to make crucial decisions that weren't made and yeah. some went too far, some didn't go far enough. Now it's, now it's just a free for all. And, and, and we've really become the divided States of America where we're in Florida, they're pretending like it's, it's not happening. And in California, where I just came from, it, it's like, it's still, there's still a lot, lock, you know, it's still locking down and businesses are closing. So it's, it's just, oh my God, never in my lifetime did I think this, but whatever. It is there's, weird. there's a really good, um, uh, Lewis, uh, who's the guy? Oh man, I love this guy. He's one of my favorite comedians. Lewis, Lewis, Lewis Black. Lewis Black. Yeah, yeah. We did a day of press together. I love that guy. He was awesome uh, at Bonnaroo. Um, yeah, he he has this really great thing about uh, years ago about there's nothing there's nothing more messed up than when uh, than when the uh, than the Republicans and the Democrats work together and reach across the aisle. He's like, <laughs> then they really fuck it up (laughs) and that's just really what we just did it's because like there's there's locking down is smart Mm -hmm. if you have a plan of why you're locking down and what you're going to do you can't just keep doing that that's what we found out here i mean to watch them learn here in australia was really heartening and it made it even sadder for me to watch no one learn in the U.S., no. you know, they would figure stuff out like with with here. You, every night on the news, something else. We figured out something else. Okay, we're getting these these issues with workers coming 
back from quarantine. So now we're going to have to find the money to pay them not to take an extra job. And we're going to have to make sure that when someone's tested, that they're paid for days off work so they can stay home because people were being tested and then not. So just little things that they would work out. And after a while, you're kind of like, okay, now we can lock down for five days and know why we're locked down for five days. And at the end of the five days, everyone goes back to business. Right. So they just turn the knobs up and down scientifically all over the country. And I was touring in the middle of it here. I was touring with orchestras right. just, just months ago. And it wasn't convenient. No. I got I, I got the swab up the nose. I think seven times in a week I was in quarantine. Yeah. Uh, people, yeah. But we got it. We actually worked. It worked. And it worked. Yeah. I mean, anyway, we're, we're a year away, I think. Yeah. Are you in New York or are you in Nashville now? I'm in Nashville. I mean, I was just gone. I was in New York for most of the winter because I just actually like the change of seasons. And I come back and I'm down Church Street heading towards the condo from the airport and there's these two silver skyscrapers that when I left in January, there were just giant holes. Now they're like 20 story buildings. I'm like, what, what is going, I mean, it, you would not, I mean, if you came back today being gone for a, even a year, you would just go, what in the world has happened? I mean, it's, it's exploded this city. It's exploded. Yeah. Crazy. Well, man, we'll see if that's a good thing or not. Probably is. Well, I mean, the city's drunk on money and they're, they're just issuing permits and whether there's enough people to fill all these condominiums and office buildings and hotels. There are. The problem is, is, is uh, the road. Yeah. The infrastructure. The infrastructure. And the fuck wants to drive around the pedal tavern and the traffic. <laughs> oh my God. Well, you know. Like some of the old timers go like, oh my God, the, the traffic's so bad. I go, you need to get on the 101 northbound at five o'clock in Los Angeles. That's when well, that's you true. there's real traffic. This is that's still true. So. That's true. But you don't expect to get stuck in traffic for two blocks around the gulch for a half an hour either. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Pretty oh. crazy. Anyway, man, good to meet you. Good to talk to you. Yeah, um, man. Same here. Thanks for doing this. Um, but, uh, Sharon says, hi, I just saw her today. Oh yeah. I need to write her back. She wrote me a, she wrote me an email and my, my rate of, of, uh, of email responses. I got about a six month, um, uh, lag time for everybody. Yeah. If you talk to her, mm-hmm. tell her it ain't selective. It's my, it's my email latency 2021. I'll exactly. get back to her. I was really happy to hear from her. I can't wait to see her. No, she's, she's, she's doing good. She's doing good. good. All right, Ben, I'll be in touch. Thanks for everything. All All right, right, man. See you. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. You just watched my conversation with the great Ben Folds. Until next time, this has been Live from Nerdville.